I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. Today's guest is Amir Falal. It is a long overdue episode. Amir's family is from Iran. We talk about their immigration into the United States, how that took place, how he deals with identity in today's society, but also how he deals with identity in his work. More importantly, we talk about Amir as an artist, and this is one of the most in-depth conversations I think I've ever had on the show about somebody's studio practice. I wanted to take the time to thank Amir for waiting so patiently for me to put this podcast out, but also for being a friend and uh, speak to me about all of his work. Without further ado, here's Amir. For coming on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we did sort of a dual thing where you came over and did a studio visit, and now I think I owe you one. Yep. I have an empty studio, so not much to see. Oh, you're getting ready for your show in New York? For the first time in like two years, I have nothing in my studio, which is great. Is it b- because you've been so busy with exhibitions, or why? What? Yeah, well, I had a lot of overlapping shows, so it was like back-to-back, so I'd be working on you know, a show in September and a show that was opening up in January. That's going to be stressful overlap. as hell. Yeah, it, it would overlap. So I have a couple of little things here and there, but the next solo show isn't until April of 2019. How many paintings would you be working on in the studio at any given time? Is it is it the type of thing where you can work on multiples or do you got to mm-hmm. focus on one to get it done? No, I, I, I do multiples. So, you know, I mean, a, a big painting takes about... And what's, what's the dimensions of a big painting? I just finished like a eight by six footer. That's large. Yeah. So for me, that's fairly big. Now, um, is it multi-panel or single panel? That one's single panel because I had, I had a free stretcher. But you do do multi-panel as well? Yeah, I can. Yeah. I have eight by 15 foot piece that I'm going to make at some point and that's on... That's multiple panels. Yeah, it's three, three, five foot. 15 foot would be yeah. gigantic. Yeah, so it fits exactly on the longest wall in my studio. So is that going into an exhibition or what? What's no, happening? I don't even know what's going on. I just I, I bought the panels, I had them made, and then I've had them for about a year and a half. Trying to figure out what the hell to do with them. <laughs> yeah. Like we're just what finding the, the time and finding the right show for them. But so I want to talk a bit about. I have a specific question about building your compositions based on sizes like that. But then we sure. want to go into. I, I've heard you speak about this, but I, I think it's. Personally, it's uh, what attracts me to the work as well, too, is how you compile the compositions and what it means to you. But specifically, when you're building out a composition like that, do you go ahead and do sketches first to put that together and put it in Photoshop? Or how do you how do you lay out what your panels are going to be? So all, all the uh, all the figurative paintings that I do, they're all based on a photo shoot. So I actually I go to someone's home. And I photograph them with all the objects that you see in the painting. So most of the time in the figurative paintings, when you see objects and fabrics and anything representational, those are real things that exist in the subject's uh, home. So we were, we were just talking about this because I use, obviously I'm a sculptor, I use tons of objects. But mm-hmm. for me, the history of the object is what sort of the relevance is. And sometimes when I'm building building a piece and having those imperfections and everything show through the actual objects that are in the, the final sculpture 
when I look at your works and when I've heard you talk about this a bit, and maybe you can, can build off of this, this idea of building a portrait of someone is about building these objects, these things that they live with around them so that you can tell who they are through these. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, when I first started the work, I was trying to figure out how do you create a portrait of someone without showing what they superficially look like? So, And what, what brought you to that, though? Why, why was that important? At the beginning, it was just a curiosity. I didn't have like a big plan for why I wanted to make this work. And over time, the content of the work kind of revealed itself to me. And then I kind of have been fine-tuning what it's about. So at first, it was just an experiment about six, seven years ago. My wife was folding laundry on the floor, and she had this big pile of laundry in front of her, and I could only see her hands and feet. And it was just a interesting that, By the image. way, that is a ton of laundry. It was a ton, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we would kind of like save it up for the week and then just do everything all at once. And, and wear like eight layers every day. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was, win- it was a cold winter in L.A. But it was just a weird image. I walked into the room, and I kind of I was like, oh, that's so strange because it's – like you could see a figure, but only their its limbs. But it, but it fit, I think, into where you were. You, we were talking about this again earlier, but you had started doing figurative painting or figurative work a while ago and stopped. Yeah, I was I was trained as you know I I went to school in Baltimore called MICA and it's heavy on representational narrative painting. This is for undergraduate. Undergrad, yeah. They really emphasize representational imagery. And at the time I had no interest in it. I kind of got into art through graffiti and I was really into abstraction. And the last thing on my mind was how do you make something look like what it is? Yeah. But I had a lot of that training and I swore I would never make work like that. And then, you know, 10, 15 years later, what am I doing? I'm doing very labored figurative painting. What I asked this because I sort of, I did the same thing. I do the same thing, right? I was trained much the same way. I was a portrait painter when I went to grad school and I stopped and I was like, never again. What was your deterrent from wanting to, to go back to the figure? I think I just thought it was like old, old school and conservative. Yeah. And at MICA it was, you know, you had faculty there was mostly like older male artists from like the seventies that graduated from Yale. So they all had a very similar interest in what they thought good art is. And so I was kind of seen as the black sheep of the uh, painting department. Um, Nobody really paid much attention to me. Wait, why do you think that was? I think it was because I wasn't making representational work. Like there was this one girl who was at my school at the same time and she painted like Sargent. Like, I mean, these incredible paintings. I mean, technically incredible content wise, zero content. It's, it almost seemed like she had like tra- time traveled into the present day. <laughs> like the work just seemed so out of place and it was only about this technical skill that she had to like render well and, you know, make right. something look like what it is. And she was kind of like the trophy of the painting department and she won every scholarship. And But they were really interested in that. Like, Did you ever go back to see what she's doing now? I'm sure she's doing great. She's probably showing at Form Gallery. I haven't yeah. looked her up, but that, that was kind of the track record. We actually got a, got into, we got accepted to all, almost all the same graduate programs, except for she got into Yale. I didn't get into Yale, but we came out to LA to go visit UCLA and CalArts and Art Center at the same time. Really? 
And um, so... But you were doing the same type of work. She was doing something different than you. Something different. I mean, she was technically, she was incredible. And I think she got into a lot of these more progressive schools because they were so curious about why somebody was painting. Actually, this is why I got into SVA. Yeah. They couldn't figure out why somebody was doing portrait painting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, actually, I remember the head of the painting department at UCLA saying that about her where they were like, why? So wait, so why did you get in? (laughs) <laughs> you know, you, well, you know, what's funny is I think because you're not making the same type of work. I was making these very explosive, colorful, fairly loose paintings that were heavily influenced from like skateboard graphics and graffiti yeah. and graphic design. But I think what I got it, got into school with was because of the content of the work. The content was very personal and ironically, I've kind of circled back to the same content. Well, it's now. funny. It probably read honest, right? It was very honest. And it was almost like the only thing that I kind of could comment about at that young age. I got into grad school when I was 22, so I didn't know anything oh, at all. Oh, that's really young. I was way too young. You didn't know that at the time, though? No, I was just a go-getter. You know, I was, I was like, I know I want to be an artist. I know I want to show in galleries. I know exactly who I am. And But you really didn't know... Wait? But you probably didn't know what galleries you wanted to show in. No, or what. I didn't know anything about You art. didn't really know. No. All I knew was that I wanted to be an artist, and this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I knew that you know, maybe I could add something to it. So, so this is the exact same thing that happened to me when I went to grad school. I got in there, and I realized pretty quickly that I had no clue what the art world really was compared to what I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sort yeah. of scary. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, coming from Baltimore where there's like one gallery and it's not even a real gallery to Los Angeles and then working with this like all-star dream team of professors was insane. Yeah, well, and and probably at first you didn't even know who the all-star team really was. I knew some of them because they were in my art history book. Like I remember (laughs) at the end of my art history book in undergrad, there was a whole like contemporary artists. Like, so there was like a page on John Baldessari. You're like, oh, that guy. And he was, yeah. (laughs) And so when I looked at the roster of teachers, I was like, oh my God, John Baldessari. First of all, I didn't even know he was alive. Like I didn't know anything. I hadn't researched any of these people. So I was like, wow, I I didn't study with him. (laughs) I was a bit older. I was 28 when I went to grad school. So that's in 20 years, like the 20s, that's that's a considerable amount. But I was still not educated in what I should have been educated when I went and looked at the artists who were actually on the, the staff, the faculty at, yeah. at SVA even. I wish I was 28. I think I would have benefited. So I was making all this very like personal work about what it is to be an Iranian American, Yeah, which is exactly what I'm doing now still. But I would bet though that at 22, what year was this? 2000 to 2002, okay, 2003. So you're at that, at that time you're a major outlier. Yeah, in, it was in, kind of ahead of its curve. Yeah, no. There wasn't that many Iranians. Well, contemporary Iranians making that work either, yeah, there right? There was Shireen Nishat. Right. And um, one of my classmates was also, happened to be, or he was a, a year ahead of me. He was also an Iranian artist, and he was, you know, we were kind of going down the same path, although the work looked very different. The problem is my my work was working. It was It was hitting some of the right notes. But what the problem was, I didn't know why it was hitting those notes. You didn't know what the notes were. Yeah, and I just thought, oh, 
I'm talented and this is just what happens. People like it because I'm right. cause I'm good, but I didn't know why it was good. So somewhere I got off that path and I got bored with the work and I didn't realize that, you know, when you hit a wall, you should just keep continue and push past that frustration. Well, this is one of the things that graduate schools, I think, do sometimes is you get praise for a certain thing, right? And it's mm-hmm. it may not be completely specific or even if it is specific, it doesn't allow you to work through the process that you probably should in the studio because you're either focusing too much on one thing or not focusing enough on, on something in general about just making the work. So I think for me being in the studio during graduate school, wasn't necessarily about just making, which today, the reason if the work is good now, it's because I'm just in the studio making all the time. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and like what you said, it sort of resonated with me was this idea of not knowing what the notes were for me, that same thing happened probably because I wasn't educated enough in that thing or I hadn't studied art enough to understand why it was or wasn't working. I knew that I had an eye. I knew that I could create a composition. I knew that there were certain aspects of what I was doing that were really good, but I didn't know how they played into the rest of what I should be making, how that, how that all fit together. Mm-hmm. And something we were talking about earlier too is it took me I think like seven years or something until I, after I got out of grad school or whatever it was to actually figure out what I should be making. That's exactly how long it took me. Seven years. It took seven years for me to kind of purge all the voices in my head. Yeah. From grad school and just you know because once you're out of grad school nobody cares what you're doing so you're just left alone. Isn't that with your lovely? Yeah. yeah. In a horrible way. <laughs> yeah, it was horrible, but it, I guess I just needed it. At a certain point, I was just like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to, what am I actually interested in? And two of my interests, I realized the work that I like by other people is very personal. And I'm also very interested in real stories, real people. Uh, Like I'm a huge documentary buff. I only read nonfiction. Is that right? As a rule, like I I haven't read a piece of fiction since maybe high school or co- maybe I read some in college cause it was like required mirror. That's really intense. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't like something, I really don't like it. So yeah. So I've just realized I'm, I'm fascinated by real people and their real stories. Like I could meet an accountant and become completely fascinated by their career yeah. and want to know everything about them right. and find it just as interesting as, you know, this is why an I love, astronaut. This is why I love doing the podcast though too, is because I get to sit down with somebody and actually dig into yeah. As you're talking, I, I have all these questions that are popping in my head and I have to stop from interrupting you, which is my <laughs> traditional form of <laughs> having a right. conversation. I want to go back to Baltimore mm-hmm. because I lived in D.C. for six years. I believe we talked about this a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So growing up, you're from Virginia, right? Yeah, just outside of D.C. Whereabouts? What specifically? Uh, Fairfax, Virginia. Yeah. Okay. So I and I lived in Alexandria. Yep. My you're, old stomping ground. So. Yeah. Are your parents still there? Yeah, my parents still live in Reston, and my dad owns a restaurant in Arlington. Okay. Is it Iranian food, or what is it? No, it's Italian. He owns an Italian restaurant. Yeah, he owns a... It's part of a chain called Lido Pizza, and it's Oprah's favorite pizza. Is that right? If if anybody's anybody's ever in Virginia, hit up my dad. (laughs) That's amazing. So are your parents first generation or not? Uh, yeah. So we came here when I was like six years old, six or seven years old. So, uh, I was born in Iran from first grade on. I was, do you have siblings? No, I'm an only child. Okay. So how was that transition when you were a kid in Virginia? It was brutal. It was tough. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, moving to some place where you don't speak the language. Did you, you didn't speak English? No, and, and we had like a very crazy trip to America. Like we we lived in Turkey for about a year and a half. Because you had to before the transition or what? No, we, we left Iran during the Iran-Iraq war and we didn't have to leave, but my parents just didn't want their kid growing up growing up in a country where there was this war. I mean, the war wasn't in Tehran where we lived, but um, there would be air raids there. Like I, you know, some of my earliest memories is coming out of our apartment and running into this parking lot because the siren went off. And um, when the siren went off, that means like Iraqi planes were really close and you could hear them. And so it was dangerous to be in like high rise buildings. And I remember as a little kid seeing Iraqi planes or hearing planes above. I don't know if they were Iraqi or Iranian planes, but I had like a little toy gun. I remember pretending to like shoot them down. And your parents are like, we're leaving. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that's a crazy thing. I mean, if you think about it as like somebody who lives in America. I wouldn't want my kids going through that. But like a lot of people don't have the option to leave. So how did your parents have the option to leave? In Iran, we were like considered, you know, upper middle class. We, my, my dad owned a business. My mom was a nurse. She what did he do? What was the business? Honestly, I don't know. I think he had some sort of clothing store yeah. or something. But we had like a very nice so you had lifestyle. had some money. Yeah. We, I mean, we weren't rich, but we were You had enough very money to leave. Yeah. They had their own home, you know, multiple cars. We traveled regularly, you know. Um, so I don't know anything about this. Uh, educate me on mm-hmm. if you're living in a country like Iran, Mm-hmm. and you want to leave to go to another country, is it difficult to do that? No, I mean... It it's was... pretty straightforward. You can cross the border and nobody gives a shit. Yeah, as long as you got the right uh, the correct paperwork. paperwork. Yeah, I mean, because my parents weren't politically tied to anything. You know, that's, you know, after the Iranian revolution, some people had to leave because they were, like, connected to the Shah's regime. They're going to be persecuted. Right. Yeah. But my parents didn't have any ties to that. Um, so you'll get documents to leave and it's not a huge yeah, issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, you can just go, go to Turkey and say you're so going for vacation. You don't have to, that's what I mean. So going. this is, that was, I guess my main question is when you left for Turkey, you didn't tell them that you weren't coming back. I mean, I, I don't know if you leave America, do you have to tell the government? No. I, I don't, I don't know if in Iran you have to do that. I honestly, I don't remember because of getting a visa or something like that. I guess that yeah. was my question. You were so young, you wouldn't know anyway. But. Yeah. I think what happened was we were going to go from Turkey to Germany or Sweden or somewhere. We had a family, a distant relative who was going to be like our guide and who was going to help us figure out all the paperwork. And we were going to go to Turkey and then apply for refugee status to another country because right. of the war and then go through these legal channels. Yep. And this guy was going to charge us a small fee. Yeah. And what happened was he was going to be a guide for maybe like 10 people, multiple like families. multiple families. And he would charge us a small fee, and I think he took everybody's money for their visas and plane tickets and everything and just took off. And just bolted. Yeah, so he left us stranded in Turkey. Holy shit. And we had no money left because he had taken all of it, and my parents had sold off their business, their house. Oh, my God. Quit their job. And they have a child. And they have, yeah, four- or five-year-old kid. So we had nothing to go back for, and my parents were young. They were in, like, in their late 20s, early 30s, so my dad— and they mom, still they still had family in Iran though. Yeah, we have huge family. Yeah. yeah, my mom's actually in Iran. She she's actually coming back today from visiting family. And uh so my dad had trained, if you can believe it, at one at one time the US military trained the Iranian military. So my dad was in the U- Iranian Air Force during the Shah's era and he actually was trained in America and spoke fluent English. He lived in Texas on some Air Force base right. for a while. So he always loved America. 
And after this guy took off with our money to Germany, he was like, we can't go to Germany because if I go there and I see this guy, I'm going to kill him. Like, right. I'm so upset. And so he decided he would try to apply for refugee status to the U.S. because he had been there and he loved America. Yeah. He spoke the language. And so he applied for it. And the guy at the embassy said something like, usually I don't believe people's sob stories, but you seem pretty genuine. Uh, I'll grant you a visa, but you have to wait. First, you have to promise that you're not going to move back to Iran, like you're going to permanently move to America. And then you also have to wait in Turkey for a year and a half. It's a long time. Not compared to now. I mean, now it's a lottery system. Right. So a year and a half is like nothing. Right. Because it could be never. Well, now there's this stupid travel ban. So now it's never. Yeah. Or it's very difficult, much more. So back then it was actually very, a year and a half was nothing. So even though we didn't have any connections to anyone in Turkey and we had no money, we waited in Turkey for a year and a half. What did they do to survive? My dad was a Farsi to Turkish translator. Now, keep in mind, my dad didn't speak Turkish, but somehow he's a smart guy. and He, he made it work. He made it work at a pharmacy. That is crazy. Um, and we lived in like the ghettos of Turkey, like literal ghettos, uh, you know, with like no money. We lived with prostitutes for a while. Uh, we had roommates. They turned out to be prostitutes. Um, and your parents knew this, I'm sure, but. Well, no, it was just like they, they got these roommates and then like later on they oh, found then out. Oh, then they found out. <laughs> and, then, and then they were like, I think we got to move out of here. <laughs> so, you know, it was extreme. So in Iran, we had this great lifestyle and then we moved to Turkey. Abject and poverty. Oh, I mean, it's like, I mean, in a Turkish ghetto is a lot worse than an American ghetto. I can yeah. tell you that much. Um, I remember we had this one apartment that had this tiny balcony and I would feed pigeons like stale bread on it. And like the view of the balcony was just like a crumbled building. <laughs> so I, would, I just, I remember like throwing breadcrumbs at these crumbled buildings, you know? Were you going to school or not? Yeah, I went to like kindergarten out there and I spoke fluent Turkish by the time we left. So you got, they got the visas. They got the visas. We came to America with $72 and we stayed with my uncle who was already out here. That's why Virginia or what? That's why Virginia. And he was, he didn't have his shit together. He was like delivering pizzas. And, um, (laughs) so I mean, mom had to been so mad. Well, you know, he was like young and I mean, he was also like a refugee. I mean, it's, it's hard to move somewhere, you know? The one thing a lot of people don't realize is, you know, a lot of refugees, if you go somewhere and you're like 20, or, I mean, think about what you were doing when you were 20. Yeah. Imagine like escaping war, moving to a country where you don't speak the language and you have zero help, zero money and starting from trying to find a nothing. job anyway is a, a exactly. bitch. Yeah. And there was trying no to find monster. A job you, com. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, so, you know, he was doing the best he could, but he wasn't a lot of help. And my dad got like two or three jobs. This was your brother's? My, or your my, father's brother? Or no, was, my mother's brother. This is your mother's brother. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I mean, he, he let us stay at his house, you know. My mom took English classes and my dad spoke a little, you know, he spoke fluently, but it was like, you know, with this thick accent. His name is Hossein. And he, he just did whatever he could, even though he's like a college graduate. He like washed dishes. He worked at a 7-Eleven. Then he got, he was delivering pizzas. He worked as a bank teller. I mean, you know, my, my dad's like the American dream. He's... He's he's amazing because he just did what needed to get done to survive and he just... And support the family. Yeah. And he just like built it little by little and then delivering... He was the man... He became a manager of a Domino's Pizza 
and my uncle was working at this Italian pizza place called Lido Pizza. And my dad loves to tell this story about how if he had to buy pizza, he would go to Lido Pizza. <laughs> but if he got it for free, he would just take it from Domino's. Right. And so Lido Pizza became available for purchase because it was like a failing business. And my parents had become best friends with my mom's uh, English teacher. So somehow they convinced them to partner up with them and buy, to buy the business. Yeah. So my dad was like, you know, I'll work in sweat equity. You just put up the money to buy the business. Well, they probably saw your dad working his ass off all the yeah. time anyway and knew that it wasn't going to fail. Or if it was going to fail, it was going to fail with him trying his best yeah. to make sure it didn't. And they're, they're, they're amazing people. They're, uh, you know, they're like family to us. So do they still own the business with you? Oh, dad? yeah, yeah. They're still, yeah, we're actually going to their daughter's wedding in Costa Rica next month. Oh, awesome. And she wasn't even born. Really? Uh, when they had met. So, yeah, they're, they're, they are lifelong, you know, fam- they're family. That's a great story. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so how long has he owned the business? God, I don't even know at this point. I 20 mean, years or something like that? Over that. Cl- yeah. Probably close to 30. Is that right? Yeah. It is not failing anymore then. No, no. It's, <laughs> but, you know, the fir- like all throughout high school, it was, a str- it was a struggling business for like, t- you know, the restaurant business is tough. But my dad, he doesn't know how to quit, yeah. you know, and um, he had every obstacle thrown at him and he just persevered. He willed that business being a success. Well, isn't this, this is, this is the art world though too, right? Yeah. Like we're, we're talking about not figuring out what you should be doing for like seven years after grad school. The only people who do that are the people who are still standing after that amount of time. I always, I think about this with my own career or just what I'm making in the studio. It's, there's so much rejection. There's so much negativity in the world, the art world. I mean, the world in general, but the art world specifically, it's so hard to even figure out where you should be in, in your own process and be sort of honest about how you're producing the work that when it comes to financially trying to figure out how to be successful or even survive, it's so difficult. Yeah. I, I always like to tell younger artists or students, if you can do anything else, do it. This is not an easy career. There's no textbook, you know, way of going about it. It's it's only good for people who don't have any other well, choice. You, well, I, I would say that if it's if it's a if it's a choice to make a living at it, right? Right. L- like for many people, like I wanna make a living at it. I can't effectively, as an artist making the work that I'm making right now and selling the volume that I'm selling, it is a substitute for expenses, but it does not support my family in whole. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I would say that if you, I don't know, I couldn't not make the artwork. That's like, what I mean. I mean, I don't mean there's like not an option. quit your day job. Um, I mean, obviously many artists have day jobs. I mean, most, I feel like almost all Everybody have I some know. sort of hard hustle, yeah, side hustle. But what I mean is, don't go to root of down this rabbit hole of trying to show at galleries. It's just a lot of work and rejection. So, and it'll come like naturally maybe. if the work is you good. Think so maybe. I don't know. I know a lot of great artists with no career. I think. <laughs> I think. I think that it's a combination. Of, I think it's a combination of a couple different things. I think that it'll come if you work hard at making it come, but I think it'll come also if you're in the studio making good work all the time. Yeah, no, you, no, you're right in that sense. I guess what I'm thinking about is I know some artists who are, their work is great, but they don't want to jump through a lot of the career hoops that you but have. To, that's why they don't have a gallery. Right. They don't have a gallery. They don't want to, yeah, they don't want to do the business side of it, which 
is it is a business. Yeah, it's a business. I say this to, and maybe I don't know if I've talked about this too much already on the podcast, but maybe not enough. The the art world, like these galleries, pay rent yeah. if if they don't own the the space, and then they pay a mortgage. So every month they need to pay the bills. It is a business. So they're going to look at things in a business sense, generally. Yeah. So if you walk into a situation and you don't think that it's going to be that way, I think you're you're misguided in some way, shape, or form. The good galleries help foster an artist's career and figure out where they should be in the long-term trajectory of what they should be doing as artists in the studio. Yeah. But they're still a business. Wouldn't you? No, I, I, I agree with you. I mean... I think that's a big mistake a lot of artists make. I mean, when I was at UCLA, I remembered a lot of people, especially back then, UCLA was still super hot. You know, I'd say half the students were already showing at major galleries while they were still at school. Right. Yeah. And I remember there was a couple of students who made good work, but they would graduate and then nothing would happen and they would be shocked. Freak the fuck out. Yeah. And they would just... They wouldn't understand that they would have to like try to line up studio visits. And they were like, well, by the way, I think, I think that still happens today everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, what are, what are you waiting for? I got a friend. I have a friend who got out of a really good graduate program overseas and he couldn't figure out why it wasn't just clicking right away. Yeah. And I think it was really, and he's a fantastic artist and I think it was really difficult for him to do the grind of having to not have people see the work. Yeah. As it is for all artists who have that now. I have multiple galleries, and it is a grind for me in the studio not having people see the work when I think it needs to be seen sometimes. Yeah. You just have to – it's two different sides of it. You know, there's there's the side in your where you're in your studio and you're making the work, and, you know, you have to take that maker hat off and put on the business hat, you know, to a certain extent, and figure out how are you going to – create opportunities for yourself if they're not happening. So this this will lead into another conversation I want to do with you about um, Beautiful Decay. Mm-hmm. It was a magazine that you started a while ago and it was highly successful. But we jumped off the subject of family. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to not leave this topic just yet because of all the stuff that's happening right now in current political climate. Sure. And I just wanted to talk to you a little bit and get your feelings on like, on that specifically. I saw an article the other day out that you had uh, contributed to uh, about this, about being a banned American essentially and being delayed at the airport when you come in. But like, let's talk about specifically about how it affects you as a person and in, in your thinking about making or traveling or just anything. In undergrad, I was making work that was about- And you are an American citizen, right? I now. am an, yes. Right. Yeah, I've been a citizen for most of my life. And, you know, I left Iran when I was, five years old. And since then I've mostly lived in America. And, something, I, something, and I think of myself as an American. I mean, well, this is something that I, I saw that you said someplace else is that you're, you're not completely American and you're not Iranian either completely. And it, you're in this weird position of being in the middle, but being represented as one or the other in extremes of, of both things. Right. Well, if I went to Iran, I would be seen as a foreigner. Right. Because I speak Farsi, but I don't speak it as well as somebody who lives there. I don't know the local slang. I, my vocabulary is probably at like a teenage level. Well, and also you probably, your mannerisms and who you are are American. Yeah, the way I dress, the way I think about things. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm American. In America, on paper, I'm viewed as an American until somebody hears my name or sees what I look like. 
Yeah. And I think that growing up with that and being conscious of that my entire life, I think that's what. Were you conscious of that as soon as you got here because of being like right away? Immediately. Was it because of the way people treated you or because of your circumstances of how you came over? Both. I mean, you, you do get treated different. My wife is uh, Puerto Rican, but she's a redhead and she looks white. She yeah. looks Irish. Yeah. People assume she's white. People make racist jokes about Latinas around her. To her. Oh, all the time. She go and, and it goes the other way too. She'll walk into like a grocery store where there might be a Latino guy behind a counter. And this has happened multiple times and they'll say something about her. In Spanish? In Spanish, some derogatory. Think like that she can't understand what. She, yeah, and she like snaps back and she's, you know, says something, you know. Like I said, she's Puerto Rican. She's very sassy. and <laughs> <laughs> So she like, like snaps no, back. No, 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 motherfucker. Yeah, she snaps back at them in Spanish, you know, with like an authentic Latino accent. And they turn pale as a ghost because they don't expect this girl who looks right. like Molly Ringwald to sound like that, that and speak, you know. So there's. So you're both dealing with the same thing and like totally in very different ways. Is like, that what brought you guys together a little bit? You think? No, or no, no. I, I, I didn't realize she was Puerto Rican until like the third or fourth. You time. thought she was a white girl too. Yeah. She looks, I mean, she, <laughs> especially when she was younger, she looked exactly like Molly Ringwald. Oh, that's funny. I mean, she's, she's white, super white skin, you know? So anyways, I've, but I've been around it my entire life. I mean, I remember going, stopping at a truck stop in deep rural Virginia and walking into you know, this like little country store and the people behind a register just looking at me like I was like some alien and I could feel it. They didn't say anything, but I could feel it. They were like, how old this? were you? I don't know, probably seven to 10 years old. But you were little. Yeah, yeah I was little. And I, and I could, I'm like, why are they looking at me like this? Like, yeah, at that age, you can't really sort of. Yeah, but it was, it was constantly present and I never dealt with any overt racism, you know, did your parents ever have a conversation with you about it or not? No, no, they just, yeah, we never talked about it. I mean, my parents were so busy just trying to survive and rebuild their lives. I mean, yeah, they had to, they had a successful, they built their successful life in Iran. Then we moved to Turkey and they tried to semi build a successful life there. And then they had to come to America and start a third time. And this was all before the age of 30. Can you imagine restarting your life three times? I can't imagine restarting it now. Exactly. Yeah. At all. Uh, I mean, my parents are like superheroes. So this idea of identity resurfaces then when you start producing the work. Yeah. And the idea that you can't tell who someone is from the outside and really what it takes is knowing more about who they are as a person. So this is when I was looking at the work and hearing you speak, this is the thing that stuck out to me is how can your all of these experiences building up to what you're actually producing now creates this idea of don't I'm not represented by what you think I am I'm represented by these things that make up a whole right yeah I mean I I think that what we look like tells you nothing right you know um or what our names us are I remember when I was a teenager I would speak to somebody on the phone and for whatever reason they didn't know my name and then I met them or once I told them my name they were like oh you're not white. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I don't have an accent. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it, it, it happens all the time. And I think that 
that has worked its way in the in the work and also my interest in documentaries about real people and I'm interested in people's stories and like what the, what they are really about. Yeah, I'm just I I'm interested in like real people and the amazing things that they do. But you want the meat of of what that is. Yeah, not, not the superficial. What, yeah. Not not what's on the surface cuz the surface is the least interesting part. Yeah, I I don't disagree. I feel like even being a white guy from the Midwest, I feel a certain role as well too and what that stereotype is. Right. And sometimes I don't do anything to dissuade that through my actions. And other times, you know, everybody is, we're always perceived in a certain light until people take the time to understand what we are outside of that. And it's just, it's always been very present for me thinking about that, but I can't imagine what it's like as, as a kid too, and coming into the situation as being an, an, an immigrant from another community. So let's go to you building a successful, successful business as well too in the magazine. Uh, the, tell me a bit about Beautiful Decay. Originally, it was a punk zine that I made in high school with my next door neighbor. In Virginia. By the Virginia. way, I saw that you were wearing a Brad, Bad Brain shirt in one of your interviews. Yeah. <laughs> and I wondered, like, how old are you? How old am I now? Yeah. I'm 38. Okay, so you're, we're roughly the same age. I'm 40. So yeah. you probably grew up listening to punk because the DC scene. Yeah. But we were slightly out of it, right? So mm-hmm. it happened probably eight years prior to us being there. Yeah. Well, there was this like second wave. So I hit the second wave. Yeah. Too. So I, I was, I was deeply involved in the, in the hardcore scene in DC. So early nineties all yeah. the way to two thousands. I went to this high school in the suburbs and a lot of my friends were in bands. Almost everyone I, everyone I hung out with were in bands and, um, like 930 Club, Black Cat, was that around or not? Yeah, that was around, but they were like playing, you know, like everything from like generator shows. DIY, to, yeah. Yeah, to shows at this place called Safari Club. Um, but it was like, it, you know, this was like post Bad Brains, even post Gorilla Biscuits. Bad Brains was still playing then too. They, they were, were but it was like a it was like a reincarnated. Yeah, I, I saw them once, but I it saw, wasn't the same. It was I like, saw Minor Threat then too. Oh yeah, yeah. See, or not Minor Fugazi. Uh, oh, it'll be Fugazi. Yeah, so Fugazi was still around. So Fugazi was still doing the five dollar shows. Yeah, but I wasn't really in the. I I love Fugazi, and I've seen them dozens of times. But there was this other hardcore scene that was separate from Fugazi. Like so, there was bands like Damnation AD and. Um, and battery. There was all these bands coming out of DC. Right. Uh, um, there was just a huge scene in DC, and they were having these like very small DIY shows. And we'd on the weekends we travel up and down the East Coast to go see shows. No shit. From Baltimore to New Jersey. That sounds and amazing. It was just like a very tight knit community, and I got into that through skateboarding. Right. Um, As did I. I was really into graffiti, and for whatever reason, even though most people associate graffiti with hip hop. And in the DC area, all the graffiti writers would go to punk shows and hardcore shows. So there was just this weird, vibrant scene in DC. So you created this in parallel to that stuff taking place. I I didn't. All my friends did something, so they were in bands or they would put together shows. So so you needed something to do. I needed something (laughs) to do. Yeah. Well, my neighbor Jay and I, we were both really into graffiti and. Um, we were like, well, we don't play in bands and, uh, you know, we don't have a record label. What can we do? We just came up with this idea of doing this like cheap $1 photocopied zine. I did three issues of it. It didn't, no one paid attention at all. In high school. Yeah. In high school. Yeah. And then I forgot about it. 
And then when I was in college, I, w I did this like a, it was like a study abroad. It wasn't abroad. It was like, it was this thing called a New York studio program where you would go to New York and like pretend to be a real artist <laughs> uh, for a semester. Yeah. And it would give you a studio and you would have studio visits. Wow, that's intense. It was almost like grad school, yeah. pre-grad school. It was amazing. It was you were living there or not? Yeah, I lived in New York for six months. So this was holy shit. This was my junior year, and while I was there, I had an internship at a gallery in Brooklyn called Roebling Hall. And this was during the first wave of Williamsburg becoming this like creative hub. So there was there was all these galleries in in Williamsburg and all all around Brooklyn. And I also was interning at Deitch Projects. And like I said, I was That's very, insane. Yeah, I was very interested in Deitch because of the fusion of art and design and graffiti. I don't think I knew that. Maybe I, I don't know if I did. That I interned there? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, Jeffrey didn't know I, I was interning there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, it, it's not, it's not anything important. I mean, no, but it's, it is important to like the fundamentals of where you're at now. Yeah, it was a huge influence. I mean. This was right around the time that Barry McGee kind of broke into the art world. And I mean, that's a real gallery showing like works that are going to influence what yes. you're thinking about when you go on. Yeah. And it was one of the only galleries I had ever heard about. And so I got this internship there through this uh, curator uh, that was teaching at the New York Studio Program. And I was there for six months. I sat maybe like six feet away from Jeffrey. And <laughs> I think in those six months, he never said a word to me. Really? Ever? Like never even like, who are you? But I was this timid kid from the suburbs. I yeah. think I like wore dress pants and tucked on my shirt every I day. I did the same thing. That place was like full of these like beautiful, super intelligent Hip. city girls. Yeah. You know, that were, you know, it was like all did, women and did, me. Did he pay attention to them? <laughs> Well, I mean, he yes. he had employed them, so yeah. Yes, but yes, he I mean, did. I just I just flew under the radar, and l many years later, we actually ended up doing a collaborative issue with uh, Dutch, Dutch projects. projects, and the the gallery's director, who had hired me as an intern, had no recollection that I had worked. You at. even worked there? Yeah, and I was there for six months. So, so wait, okay, so let's go back though. Sure. You're in college. You decide to start this up again, or what happened? Yeah. So from working at from working at Deitch Projects, I realized that I was interested in this fusion of art and design and street culture and and how they all were speaking to one another, or they had the potential to influence one another. Yeah. And so I had sold five little paintings in this tiny show, and I had five thousand dollars. I thought to myself, well, I could either spend this money. Isn't that amazing going how out. much money that probably seemed like oh, yeah, to you? Like, like a holy fortune. shit. And I thought, well, I could either spend this money or I could do something useful with it. And so I started this, this, the magazine back up this time without my, my buddy Jay. And I had, a, I didn't know design. So I had a local design student that Micah designed it for me pro bono for exposure. And they had like a real portfolio piece because they were also students. Right. And you know, I would cold call stores all over the U.S. and get them to carry it. How did, how did you start publishing? Where did you get the money to, like, that Well, 5, I had that $5,000 funded the first That issue. allowed you to publish. How many yeah. copies were you able to make? I think I did, like, a couple of thousand copies, and it was, like, 27 pages. Yeah, but that's still pretty impressive. Yeah, it was, like, a glorified brochure. But we started having these parties all up and down the East Coast. The Internet Who's was around. Idea? Whose idea was that? It was mine. 
to, to like or maybe a friend. I, I don't like remember. pitch parties for the magazine. No, they weren't pitch parties. They were issue release parties. So we would throw these big warehouse parties, and we would charge five dollars at the door. Oh, and for each issue that came out, you do a yeah. And uh, we so we did like multiple release parties in different cities, and that's how I funded the first couple of issues. And we would get small ads here and there. How many people would show up to the parties? Oh, like five, six hundred people. It was a which good, was a lot. Good size I mean, parties, yeah. Well, the breakdown was I would use a friend's loft in Baltimore for a hundred dollars for yeah. the night, and they would have these like you know like all these bike couriers live there, and I would get my buddy uh, to DJ yeah for free. And then I would have a bunch of artist friends come and do like crazy installations or, you know, we'd have like some sort of art component. Yeah, Yeah, some sort of art component. And we'd have like three kegs and it was like if you paid five bucks, you could drink until there was no more beer. And they were wildly successful. The last one we had, um, we had people from Boston come down, New Jersey, New York, uh, Tennessee. I mean, To where? to, To Baltimore. (laughs) <laughs> for a part for a one night party and a work and like you know almost like a squat <laughs> that is crazy yeah we had a guy show up with a sawed off shotgun and i mean it was it was crazy but these parties funded the first several issues so um, how long did the magazine last it's i mean it's had a couple of different lives so it's online now yeah so it's archived online so i did the print issues the last print issue was probably like 2010 of the magazine yeah because the magazine, I thought it would be really clever to letter the issues instead of number them. Yeah. So it'd be like A, B, C, yeah. D. And part of the reason I, I thought it was clever and I was like, well, that's, we're that's never going to get the Z. You went and through, if we get the Z, we'll just do like A, A, B, B. Yeah. And we actually got the Z. So I did, I did A to Z. But it was highly successful. Yeah. By the end of it, by the end of it, I had two business partners um, who helped me build it to what it was. And what was the content? I, we haven't even discussed that. It changed a lot because there was this was never a real business. It just kind of, but it turned into it, one. It became successful on a fluke. Yeah, um, it was just kind of right place, right time. And so, so the content at the end was what? I mean, at the very end, it was more geared towards my current interest, which was like the fine art world. So we started. There was a huge graffiti bend to it with a little bit of art. And as my tastes kind of developed, and I, were you the editor? Yeah, I, I was in charge of everything creative. Okay. So I was the creative director of it by the end. Eventually you figured out design. Well, that's debatable. I, I designed, <laughs> I think after the second issue, I taught myself how to do use the softwares and I designed them, I don't know, I designed like 15 issues of it. And yeah. now I'm, I'm a pretty decent graphic designer, but completely self-taught. Yeah. Um, and then once it started doing well, we hired a full-time graphic designer. So, and I kind of became the creative director. So you, if I remember right, you weren't making work when you were doing this. Were I you? was. At the same time. The entire time. Which has got to be a drain. So yeah, I did it all throughout undergrad. And then when I was at grad school at UCLA, uh, I got a fellowship so I didn't have to work. And I also had a stipend. And part of the stipend from this fellowship was that you could only do work related to your creative development. Which worked perfectly. With. So I was running Beautiful Decay out of my bedroom for many years. And our world headquarters, which was listed on a masthead, was a P.O. box. And I would get letters from people from all over the world uh, addressed to the world headquarters of Beautiful Decay. <laughs> um, so, you know, we were faking it till we made it. Did you make money at the end? Yeah, I know. It, it made it was it was my day job for many, many years. I mean, we had we had eight full time employees and 
three, so, three business partners. So and why did why did it end? Several things. I bought out my two business partners two months before the recession hit, so two thousand eight. So you got screwed. I got super screwed. So we didn't have a, we had a semi falling out. It wasn't that bad, but uh, we were just going in different directions. They had different interests. I had different interests. I bought them out. And I was kind of gearing it more towards the art world. Yeah. And we actually were having a good amount of success. We had art reviews and we were getting galleries to advertise regularly. But when the recession hit, so many galleries went out of business. You couldn't sustain. Yeah. So after issue Z, we reinvented it as like a, as a limited edition book. So only 1,500 copies of the book were published. Smart. Each, yeah. each, each one was, they were more expensive, but they would come with, artist prints. Um, there were, there were collector's items. Did they do well? Yeah, they sold, I sold out, we did nine of the books and we sold out almost all of them. Is that right? And it made a profit. I scaled everything down, but it was profitable and I was making a living off of it. But I realized somewhere along the lines that if I wanted to pursue art full time, I couldn't have this giant responsibility. It wasn't just a job. I was responsible for other people's welfare. I had this huge staff that I had to pay for and take care of and i had to deal with payroll and uh sick days and you know office dynamics and and it's a wear it's a weight around your neck but yeah it's it's a it's very different than having a teaching gig and once you're out of there you're done you're done for the day yeah um there was a lot it was a lot of responsibility and i just wanted to be in the studio i wanted to be in the studio making art and yeah, it became a, it was almost like a conflict of interest because I would get invited to these gallery dinners or some collector's home, but I was getting invited as Amir, the publisher, and not Amir, the artist. And when I would tell people that I was an artist, it was almost like they were patting me on the head being like, sure you are, buddy. Like, yeah. you make some paintings on, on, on a Sunday I, I know that feeling, by the way. Yeah. But that wasn't the truth. I was exhibiting internationally. I was selling yeah. work. I was I was in the studio four to six hours every day. I was waking up at the crack of dawn and going to the studio before I went to my office. I, I do I deal with the same thing now even. Every day I'm in the studio. On weekends starting at nine AM I'm in the studio till eight o'clock at night sometimes. Every day and it's still the same thing. I think it's one of those issues where I've always wanted to be successful at anything I did. So if I'm successful at my day job and not just half-assing it or contract working it, then it looks like a negative instead right. of a positive. Yeah, and it's it's a stupid way for people to think, but that's just how they think. It didn't really bother, that didn't bother me that much, but I was also, coupled with that was, I was burnt out. Like surviving a recession uh, and keeping the company afloat, I mean, that was brutal. Were you married yet or not? No, I wasn't. Well, I, we got married some, in 2010. Yeah, but like having a family or anything like while well, doing all that stuff at the same time, yeah. it's a wear. Yeah, it was It was super stressful. I mean, at one point I owed well over $100,000. Oh my God, that seriously? That I paid all back. Yeah, um, we, we had this clothing line that was also called Beautiful Decay and uh, they were collaborations with artists. So, you know, so like, let's say I would approach you and say, can I take one of your paintings and make it a shirt graphic? And then we would give you a proceed of the sales. Yeah. And that, we started that in 2006, and that was a huge success. I mean... Who was distributing? Like, where'd you sell it? We, well, we had, we had um, clothing reps. So we had a rep that 
that sold it to wholesales. At the height of it, we were in like over 300 stores all over the world. Oh my God. And that was very profitable. It did really well. But again, as soon as the recession hit, that part fell out too. I think 250 out of the 350 stores closed within six months. It was almost like somebody turned off the tap. And so I was stuck with a lot of inventory. It's it was very complicated. You know, it, it all resolved itself. But after going through that, it was just brutal. It's incredibly impressive that you're out of debt with that. Yeah. After was, that. Yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> It was not easy, but I'm a big I'm a big believer in if you owe money, you pay it off. You know, I, I could have very easily just filed for I had nothing personal. I didn't own a house. Or so I could have. Yeah, I would never think bankruptcy. of I would never do that. That's just not how I work. So I, yeah, I paid it all. I paid all my, and I was owed a lot of money too. I mean, advertising, you know, I mean, we were owed hundred, we we owed hundreds of thousands of and we were owed hundreds. You but would not believe good luck many, chasing that down, right? Oh yeah. I mean, from galleries to big companies, just not paying. You know, defaulting on all of them because they know yeah. that you're not going to chase them for the amount yeah. of money they owe. Exactly. Yeah. There, it was very complicated, the whole thing. And I was, I was just done with it and I knew what it was like to be in charge of a lot of people and I just wanted to be in the studio by myself or with making the, work. Yeah, making work. Which seems to be doing very well. Yeah, you know, it's it's all everything's relative, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> so circle the circle back around, this is the first time the studio's been empty in a very long time. Yeah. And you had said that it feels good, but I think it feels good that you have a little bit of breathing room, but knowing you especially after talking about all this stuff, there's no way you're not getting back in there and starting to make immediately after you get done installing the show in New York. Yeah. Well, I'm I, the last couple of weeks it's been empty and I'm just planning on what the next projects are. So it's just been nice to not, cause my work is so labor intensive that when I'm working on a show, I can't be the contents already resolved. It's all my focus is just to act. Wait, did I ever get work. an answer? How many pieces you work on at once? It's multiple. So I can be working on 10 pieces at the same time. You could time. be working on 10 at the same time, but. Yeah, because they're very labor intensive and I do use assistance. So, you know, one day I might get a painting to a certain point and then have my assistant paint 10,000 dots. You know, there's a lot of repetitive moment <laughs> movements in my work. That your time doesn't need to be spent. Yeah, doing I've painted, I've put in my 10,000 hours on yeah. dots and dashes. And so I don't need to physically paint those dots anymore. Yeah. Um, so I'll have an assistant just sit there all day, just literally. I don't do that dots. with the fabrication of like paint. We were talking about this too. I don't do that with the fabrication of panels or frames. Or yeah. I can make all these things. There is absolutely no reason for me to be doing that. Yeah, yeah. I try to outsource as much as I can because there's so much in the work that I physically have to do. Yeah. That you wouldn't I don't, be able to produce the amount of works you need to produce. No, no. And my, my hand, you know, I mean, I had that eight by six foot painting. I had my assistant work on it almost exclusively for close to three weeks straight. Wow. And she got it about halfway done, you know, like all the colors were down and she did a lot of the patterning, but then I did another half of it. You know, I did another three to four weeks on top of that. The detail stuff. Yeah. Just, yeah. There's certain things in my paintings that I just can't farm out to anybody else to make it look like my work. I have to do it. Yeah. So a lot of it's, it almost feels like underpainting. Yeah. In my mind, I wish I was a, like a very quick gestural painter. 
I, I, I just daydream about making a painting in a day. It sounds so, <laughs> it sounds so luxurious. Not that I think it's any easier. I think it's just as hard. And obviously, people that paint fast, they have to make a lot more work. Well, you got to go through all the bad stuff to get to the good shit. Yeah, but there's just something about the idea of just starting something and finishing it in a day that's very satisfying that, you know, I have to start planning a show for 2020 now. Is that right? Yeah, because I have to think of the concepts, come up with what I want to do, and if and I have to, if I'm photographing somebody, I have to contact them, photograph them, then I have yeah. to take the photos to my studio. I, have to, I do quite a bit of editing. There's a lot of background work. There's tons, yeah. So for every painting, I've put in like two weeks of just computer work and photography before I start the painting itself. Well, I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been nice to hear about your life and getting to, to where you are now. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.